thank you for downloading Business Matters live on the BBC World Service five days a week at 8am Singapore time and 8pm New York time. BBC World Service at midnight GMT. Welcome to Business Matters with Fergus Nicol and the team here in London. Today, an outspoken attack on the president of Venezuela by an old enemy. This guy in power, Maduro, is on the wrong path and it has to be corrected. Former Mexican president Vicente Fox and the Club de Madrid call for a return to peace, stability and prosperity in Venezuela. Also, beyond oversight and beyond the reach of law, billions of US taxpayers' money unaccounted for in Afghanistan's reconstruction effort. And later in the hour, the battery that could power your family will hear how Tesla aims to move from the garage into the home. This is Business Matters. The news is first. BBC News with Julie Candler. The UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has voiced his alarm about the impact on civilians of the continuing fighting in Yemen. He said more than 1,200 people have been killed and 300,000 have fled their homes in the past six weeks. Nada Torfik reports. The UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon is calling for the immediate resumption of fuel imports to Yemen. A severe fuel shortage is jeopardizing the distribution of urgently needed aid. Unless supplies are restored, Mr. Ban has warned this could make an already catastrophic humanitarian situation even worse. On Thursday, the main hospital in Aden was heavily damaged, and the water and sanitation company that provides water to Aden Governorate reported it was unable to operate due to heavy shelling. There have been fresh protests in the U.S. city of Baltimore over the death of Freddie Gray, who died of injuries sustained while in police custody. Hundreds of people are marching through the city streets, braving stormy weather. The initial results of the police investigation into how the 25-year-old black man died have not been made public. Baltimore's police commissioner, Anthony Batts, urged the public to adhere to the curfew. Residents and citizens, this is a curfew. Uh, the purpose of the curfew is not to be out on, out on the streets or outside. Uh, this is not uh, to stay on your stoop. We will use some common sense and ask you to go back into the house. Uh, It would be a little dicey if I was going to arrest you for being on your stoop, but also I don't expect you to be outside. This is not playtime. This is a serious, serious time. Uh, You don't bring in the state government and the National Guard to be playtime. We expect you to be inside your residence and inside your domicile. Colombia's Supreme Court has given the former head of the country's secret police, Maria del Pilar Hurtado, a long prison sentence for spying on opposition figures. The BBC's Colombia correspondent Natalia Cosoy reports from Bogotá. Maria del Pilar Hurtado had been granted asylum in neighboring Panama in 2010, but earlier this year she was back in Colombia and facing court. By the end of February, the Supreme Court had found her guilty of spying on politicians, judges, and journalists. Now, They have sentenced the former head of the now-defunct Department of Administrative Security to 14 years in jail. The spying took place between 2007 and 2008, and all the victims were opponents of the then-president Álvaro Uribe. The court also sentenced Bernardo Moreno, who was Mr. Uribe's chief of staff, to eight years of house arrest. Fighting in northern Mali between soldiers and Tuareg separatist rebels has left at least 19 people dead. Wednesday's attack on the town of Lere, southwest of Timbuktu, was the latest in a series of clashes over the past few days. 
The defence ministry in Bamako said nine soldiers and ten rebels had been killed in the fighting. World news from the BBC. The leaders of the three main political parties in Britain have been questioned by a live television audience for the final time ahead of next week's parliamentary election. They were cross-examined by voters about issues ranging from economic policy and public services to immigration, but did not debate directly with each other. The Prime Minister, David Cameron, was challenged over the effects of more cuts if re-elected, while Labour leader Ed Miliband was grilled over the last Labour government's legacy of debt. A judge in Austria has turned down a US request for the extradition of the Ukrainian oligarch Dmitry Firtash. He was arrested in Austria a year ago after the US issued a warrant. Mr Firtash, once an ally of the ousted President Viktor Yanukovych, is accused of paying millions of dollars in bribes to Indian mining officials through American banks. The Austrian judge ruled the US officials had not presented enough evidence to justify the extradition of Mr Firtash, who denies the allegations against him. The authorities in Chile say the Calbuco volcano in the south of the country has begun to erupt again. The 2,000-metre-high volcano erupted twice last week after lying dormant since 1972. Gideon Long reports. The government has ordered the evacuation of around 2,500 people from the immediate vicinity. Some of them had only just returned to their homes, which have been covered in ash from last week's eruptions. This time the ash is drifting southeast over the town of Cochamo and into southern Argentina. There's a danger that it will disrupt flights and cause even more problems for farmers in the region. NASA's Messenger spacecraft has ended a four-year mission to Mercury by crashing into the planet after running out of fuel. Its demise was confirmed by flight controllers when it failed to emerge from the far side. Messenger was launched in 2004 and only expected to orbit Mercury for one year. The crash was expected to leave a crater on Mercury the size of a tennis court. BBC News. Hello everybody, it is six minutes past midnight, GMT welcome. This is Fergus Nicholl with Business Matters. We're live from London. Coming up later in this programme, billions of dollars go missing in the reconstruction of Afghanistan. We'll hear from the man charged with tracking US taxpayers' money. Our military, they have actually pulled back approximately a billion dollars in contracts because they don't believe the Afghan government can actually manage those contracts and protect the money. Also, the reconstruction of Nepal after the earthquake. We'll hear why remittances may be the key to financial recovery. And we'll be welcoming our guests who are with us for the duration of the show. Revati Ashok of the Bangalore Political Action Committee is with us from South India. And Alison van Degelen, who is a tech specialist and host of FreshDialogues.com, is in San Francisco this afternoon. We'll hear from them a little bit later in the programme. First, though, a group of 26 former heads of state from around the world has written an open letter to the government of Venezuela expressing concern about what they call the difficult social, economic and political situation in the country. The letter, signed by members of the so-called Club de Madrid, also criticised the jailing of the mayor of Caracas, Antonio Ledesma, and opposition leaders Leopoldo López and Daniel Ceballos. Mexico's former president, Vicente Fox, was among the signatories, so I asked him why. Well, I did sign it, and I'm an activist in trying to force Venezuela's government to respect human rights, to respect democracy, and to respect 
people and citizens. Uh, unfortunately, Venezuela is taking a path that is extremely negative, that is totally against the future of the countries in the world working more and more together and under democratic rules. So I think this guy in power, Maduro, is on the wrong path and it has to be corrected. Why is uh, a democratic election not the corrective? Mr. Maduro is there legitimately. Is this not simply a case of your hostility against his predecessor, Mr. Chavez, has been extended? Uh, your hostility continues against Mr. Maduro. Well, this is very unfortunate that the philosophy, the logistics and the basis of democratic means to reach power have been used both by Chavez and Maduro erroneously. Because one thing is to get to power, to get to the position, and the other one is the democratic behavior on the exercise of power. And that's what we don't see in Venezuela. All voices of media have been silenced or forced to uh, comply with the regime or all citizens are being repressed and are being taken to jail because they have expressed uh, their own thinking and their own will to be Democrats. Venezuela is it's it's the black spot in Latin America. It's the little black rice on many nations that fortunately were working together on their democratic terms, on their freedom to everybody within the nation and together to build a better future for Latin Americans. Is it appropriate for outsiders to insert themselves into the legal process? For example, you say you claim your right to appear in the oral hearing of Leopoldo Lopez, one of the three you just mentioned. Uh, that hearing is due to happen mid-May. What exactly would the Club de Madrid expect to contribute to that? Well, unfortunately, when you have uh, gorillas of this type that have eliminated all free speaking and all free access to justice, either we on the outside help them out or they will be worsely re repressed and, uh, and stay in jail without having even the capacity to speak. Mr. President, have you had any response from the Venezuelan government to this intervention? No, no, we, we have not. And that's what worries us much more, that they don't seem to be hearing the voices of uh, free-speaking citizens or free leaders in the world or free institutions throughout the world, as well as they are not listening the voice of their own people. So we just have to stand up, keep the... Uh, insistence and the pressure and make sure that this guy has to either live by democracy or he has to get out of there. Fortunately, today, the reduction in income on oil for Venezuela is forcing them to behave in a different manner. But that shouldn't be the case. The case is that today, democracy, freedom, market economy is a way to succeed in any nation or any economy. That's the former president of Mexico, Vicente Fox. 
Don't forget, we always welcome your input. You can contact us by email at world.business at bbc.co.uk, world.business at bbc.co.uk, and on Facebook, find us at BBC Business News. Now, the Office of the Special Inspector for Afghanistan Reconstruction was established by the US Congress seven years ago to keep a BDI on how taxpayers' money was being spent. That BDI keeps watch no matter how it's channelled through the Department of Defence, the State Department, USAID and so on. Following a series of blistering reports over the years, the Inspector General John Sopko gave evidence to a congressional subcommittee on Thursday. I asked him first about one particularly striking claim in his most recent report, that once billions of dollars of American money are handed over to Kabul, all oversight is lost and all possibility of criminal jurisdiction. We have been raising the issue of direct assistance, which is on budget assistance, giving money directly to the Afghan government. And uh, what I indicated in my testimony yesterday is once the money hits the uh, Ministry of Finance to be used for salaries or paying for bullets, guns, food or whatever, we lose visibility on it and we lose criminal jurisdiction. I cannot prosecute Afghans who steal money from the Afghan uh, Ministry of Defense even though the money is technically coming from the United States. And uh, the good news is that uh, with the new uh, unity government, President uh, Ashraf Ghani and CEO Abdullah uh, have both indicated they want to work with us on trying to prosecute those Afghans who steal the money, which technically comes from the United States taxpayer, but is now in the Afghan uh, ministries. And we're very uh, pleased by that. Uh, We have a willing partner, and my staff have actually briefed the president and the CEO, and my staff is working with uh, their people on uh, doing a major investigation on one contract, which was a billion-dollar contract. So that's uh, the good news. Right. But is it not the case that the Department of Defense has been so concerned about the lack of accountability in the way the uh, Afghans have been spending this money that they're now taking big ticket ticket items off budget. You are correct about that. And uh, I give credit to the uh, our military. They have actually pulled back approximately a billion dollars in contracts because they don't believe the Afghan government can actually manage those contracts and protect the money. Did you get, when you gave this testimony on Capitol Hill, did you get uh, signs of alarm? From the uh, from the congressmen and women that uh, that were facing you, I, I believe they are concerned. Uh, they've been concerned for a long while. I uh, I think they're particularly concerned now because of the uh, two audits we talked about uh, dealing with uh, actually knowing how many troops there are and whether the troops are being paid. Because we're starting the fighting season in Afghanistan, and that's a serious question. Yeah, you mentioned salaries just briefly on this before I go on. You yes. you talked about uh, I think something like two point. $3 billion in salary assistance over the years, and yet there's still a potential for ghost soldiers, there's still a potential for local administrative bodies uh, fiddling away the cash. You're absolutely correct. And it's not only a concern we have on the loss of funds. It's that neither the United States nor the Afghan government themselves know how many Afghan soldiers and police are available every morning for duty 
or their capabilities because the personnel systems, the electronic systems where there are some are so poorly designed and poorly implemented that they really don't know. Is it true that you have been told by the U.S. Embassy in Kabul that you should cut your physical presence in the country, so to speak. And I wonder if that's true. Does that mean you're just being too much of a pain in the... Uh, what's what's the name? <laughs> I don't know what the reason is, and that's what our concern is. We were given no reason for the 40% cut, and we believe that's an improper attack on our independence as an independent inspector general. Going back to 1978, when the first independent inspector general was set up, the IGs have control over their budget, they have control over their personnel and where they're located. Let's assume Lloyds of London could uh, indicate to uh, your bank regulators how many bank regulators there should be and where they should regulate. That's absurd. That's not the way uh, the IGs work. That's not the way we provide uh, independent oversight. And do it pretty feistily too. That's the uh, Inspector General at the Special Inspectorate for Afghanistan Reconstruction, John Sopko, taking us up to the news headlines. Julie's here. The UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has voiced his alarm about the impact on civilians of the continuing fighting in Yemen. He said that more than 1,200 people have been killed and 300,000 have fled their homes in the past six weeks. There have been fresh protests in the US city of Baltimore over the death of Freddie Gray, who died of injuries sustained while in police custody. Hundreds of people are marching through the city streets, braving stormy weather and lightning. Colombia's Supreme Court has sentenced the former head of the country's secret police, Maria del Pilar Hurtado, to 14 years in prison for spying on opposition figures. And a volcano in southern Chile has erupted for a third time, just over a week after it roared into life following four decades of inactivity. Julie, thanks a lot. It's just coming out to 118 GMT. Well, uh, five days after that earthquake that killed at least 5,500 people in Nepal, there's still frustration in many parts of the country with villages still without any assistance of any kind. Various agencies have been trying to calculate the economic losses caused long-term by the earthquake. For example, the UN's Food and Agricultural Organization is calling for $8 million to help farmers recover from the disaster. But with two million Nepalis working abroad, the money they send home could be crucial in funding at least small-scale family recovery efforts. The BBC's Jane O'Brien's been talking to Dilip Ratna of the World Bank. You may have heard him on this programme a couple of weeks ago, and she asked him how important remittances will be. For an economy that has been suffering from decades of economic difficulties, political difficulties as well, remittances have become like the mainstay of the economy. It's a lifeline providing funding for food, funding for health, for school, for business investments. And with the earthquake, you would have two kinds of impacts. One is immediately migrants out there will want to send more money to their family because they are out there. In fact, they were sent for that very purpose, like an insurance. You go away to a place where there is prosperity, there is a job, you send money home. Now that we are in need because of the earthquake, remittances would be the first form of help to rush in. On the other side, we also know that these able-bodied people, two million of them, are out there, but they are not with the family. So that's the sort of sense of difficulty that they wouldn't be there to contribute to the restoration, recovery, reconstruction efforts right away. In the medium term, I think 
people will be able to come back to an extent. Is the money from remittances actually getting through though because of course there's been great difficulty in delivering aid? With the loss of electricity, loss of physical infrastructure, loss of safety, remittance services and banking services are impacted right away in times like that of a natural disaster. And we often think about providing food, providing shelter. We don't think about the importance of people being able to get their own cash from the banking system. And in this particular case, all these people from outside who are trying to send money home, but there may not be a way to get the money out to the near and dear ones right away. So I think that the international rescue efforts and national rescue efforts ought to think about restoring remittance services as part of the rescue package. It's not something that you wish it was there, but we can live with. No, we need it right now. Now, you mentioned, of course, that many of the people providing remittances are obviously outside the country and not there able to help. Which do you think is more important right now? Should they be coming home to help with the rebuilding or staying away and providing the money? Well, you know, it's very difficult to put a price on the near and dear one, the son, the daughter being there when one is really physically suffering. And of course, psychologically, you know, it's a huge difficulty as well for a lot of people. That is priceless. I think in the end, irrespective of, instead of asking it that way, what can we do now that these people can help their families better? And my sense is that they will immediately send a lot of money home in the medium term, they will help the family get back on its feet by reconstructing the house, giving them the maybe clothing and the shelter, and then hopefully restoring even the community school, which is extremely important so that the earthquake doesn't leave long-term damage on the next generation. Do you think that the disaster will encourage more people to go abroad? In the near term, I don't think so. In the, let's say, next month or so, on the net, I would see more people returning than leaving. But if the earthquake leaves a permanent damage on the economy, which it will, you know, Nepal was already a very underdeveloped economy. I have a feeling this is going to leave a permanent impact for next few years. It's not just next few months. And that would mean that Nepal has been set back in terms of economic growth. And that means more migration in the future. Dilip Ratna of the World Bank talking to the BBC's Jane O'Brien. Well, let's bring in our guests now here on Business Matters. Uh, let's hear first from Revati Ashok of the Bangalore Political Action Committee with us now from South India, where it's uh, a really, truly horrible 10 to 6 in the morning, I think, Revati. Another early start medal for you. Thanks so much for being with us on the programme again. Oh. Lovely to be here. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Oh, we can just hear, I think, uh, a little bit of birdsong in the background, a little bit of garden noise. What a pleasure. Also, Alison van Diggelen is a tech specialist. Uh, if you check online, you'll see freshdialogues.com. Alison's with us from San Francisco. Alison, I think it's rather more civilised, what, 20 past five in the afternoon? That's right. Very civilised, but also very hot, Fergus. Good to join you. Thanks so much for being back with us. Revati, let's start with you on on this, uh, on this what's been going on in Nepal. But I think the one thing I'd, I was looking through your Twitter feed earlier in the, in the day and I noticed that you were sending the tweets 
to your niece in the immediate aftermath. And it must have been, well, tell us what she was doing there and tell us about, tell us your relief when you discovered that she was okay. Well, uh, her name is Am- Amu Kanampili and she is the bureau chief of Associated French Press and she lives in Nepal uh, and she went, she along with her photo- uh, photographer Roberto went to the Everest base camp uh, to take photographs actually uh, on the Sherpas. Uh, this is really the uh, one year since the horrific accident happened at the Everest base camp and they really went there to go uh, uh, to tell that story. And they actually, within 15 minutes of landing there, they got buried in snow. And that horrific story is all out there. Uh, it was uh, it was it was a life threatening experience. But this brave girl was writing stories uh, even after being buried in snow and could have been killed instead of fleeing the place. She was there for four four days and filing stories. Fifteen hours got lost. Uh, we we lost connection with her. So uh, it was the story of two brave hearts. And a lot of the pictures, immediate pictures of the avalanche is Roberto's picture. So it seems very close to home. Absolutely. And two fine journalists working under extreme pressure. Uh, Alison, from your perspective, I guess what you've seen, we heard about Nepali uh, citizens abroad sending home remittances, but you've seen something about the fundraising efforts, uh, the, the the relief effort to, to drum up uh, cash to support the fundraise, to, to support the recovery. That's right. We have in the Bay Area, it's estimated between 15 and 20,000 Nepalese living in the Bay Area here, um, the San Francisco Bay Area. And a lot of them have come together. There are a lot of um, Nepalese social and cultural organizations. And I understand they've raised more than $20,000 already. A lot of people are stepping up and wanting to help their families and friends back home. It's really interesting. I was looking online. Uh, the number of separate small-scale initiatives on YouTube, just just for one site, uh, you know, Nepali-born fashion designer Prabal Gurung, lots of people raising money. Uh, let's go, go back to Revati and, and the Indian response. What have we seen over the last four or five days from the government in Delhi, perhaps also the Indian Army, by way of help and support? I think the Indian Army uh, and the government has done a phenomenal job, uh, continues to do a phenomenal job. Uh, They have sent, uh, people have sent food supplies. The Prime Minister has announced a Prime Minister's Relief Fund. There are several organizations, uh, my own Rotary Club, of which I'm a member. We are sending, uh, the entire district is collecting money. We We are sending money for... Uh, tents, emergency tents. So people are doing uh, all kinds of uh, things because Nepalese are very close to Indians' hearts. Lots of Nepalese are working across the country in uh, various uh, positions. So uh, people do understand it. People have traveled a lot to Nepal. People feel for the country. Uh, It's almost as if it's an extension of India. So we feel very closely uh, linked to that country. So t- t- just tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, you get your Rotary Club together and somebody says, right, let's let's figure out how to send money to, to Nepal. How, what did you do? How did you go about raising as much as possible as quickly as possible? 
Okay, so what happens is, uh, you know, uh, messages go around in uh, uh, WhatsApp groups or Yahoo groups or whatever other groups we have, Google groups, uh, or uh, uh, other organizations like Rotary. Companies have declared that all their employees, one day's salary will be uh, donated to Nepal. And this, this has always been a culture in India. When there is a national disaster, uh, we had the Kargil war or there is a, a big cyclone, people do it. Uh, but, you know, coming so spontaneously for something which is happening out of the country and people are doing it, coming up and doing it the same way. And one day salary, is that normal briefly? Yeah, a half a day salary to one day salary is uh, for a uh, terrible disaster. It could be man-made like a war or it could be something like this is is normal. And Absolutely extraordinary. What a, what a what an amazing model for people listening elsewhere to emulate. Uh, we're going to have much more with Alison and Riveti as we go through the programme. We're going to go up to the news in just a second. Uh, we'll be hearing about North Korea in the second half of the programme. We're going to be hearing about Tesla and we're going to be talking a lot more about uh, high-tech stuff in Silicon Valley. Oh, and hey, uh, Shinzo Abe is there as well. As we speak, more to come. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Business Matters. It's 28 minutes to 1 GMT. Now, in about three hours from now, the Silicon Valley giant Tesla is expected to announce the production of a new kind of battery, one that can power your entire house. Elon Musk's company has already been a game changer in the electric car market. And innovation there has been compounded by an open access policy under which Tesla tech can be used by anyone for free. Hence, for example, the new Mercedes B-Class, which has the three-pointed star at the front end, but a Tesla battery under the bonnet. So now another game changer, this time in the home, not the garage. In a moment, we'll hear from Revity, who's been CFO at more uh, top draw IT companies that you can shake a stick at. Also, Alison is in San Francisco, but is a tech specialist and uh, has spent more hours in Silicon Valley, I think, Alison, than uh, any of the rest of us combined. But let's hear first from Dr. Colin Brown. He's here in the UK and he came into the studio. He's Director of Engineering at the Institution of Mechanical Engineers. So this business about storage batteries for the house, why is it such a breakthrough? It's extremely important to get battery or storage generally in the home because we vary our consumption wildly between the seasons, winter to summer, but also during the day. And so people who are trying to supply us with energy, gas, electricity, have a real problem when we turn things on, turn things off, and they're there to supply it all the time. What it'll do is that when your demand goes up beyond a certain level, it will kick in and meet that demand rather than putting the utility company to meet that demand. So they don't need to put in the generation capacity, they don't need to have huge capital investments because you're saying, I won't take more than a certain amount of, of power from you at any one time. When you drop below that power, you recharge your battery and so you can work again the next cycle as it comes around. Why has it taken so long to get to this point then? 
It's basically still uneconomic, although I talk about very large capital investments at the utility companies. That is still cheaper than what happens by putting things, small storage activities in your home. I, we don't know yet the pricing of what's going to come out, but when we do, I imagine many people will say, well, I can't afford that or it's not worth it. I don't, I don't spend that amount in total on my utility within one, two, three years at all. So what's the case? The case is really twofold. One is that by doing these sorts of experiments and uh, and demonstrators, we're going to reduce the cost over time, and so it will become much more economic. The other one is that if we're going to diversify our energy supplies away from more traditional oil, gas, coal, we're going to use more intermittent supplies like the sun, like the wind, like tides. You've got to have storage because the energy company just can't turn it on and off. It can't turn the sun on and off, so it may not be able to supply when you want it. How big a difference is there between a household battery storage unit of this kind and a car battery that Tesla is already well known for. Cars are quite uh, demanding on energy and so actually the technology we've already developed and particularly the technology that Tesla has developed has got much higher capacity for storage of energy than will be put in these houses. Typically a house would need about 12 to 15 kilowatt hours of storage in order to smooth out its demand. A car, like a Tesla car, has got somewhere around about 80 kilowatt hours. So this is technology well within what we've already experienced in automotive. How quickly do you think, uh, Colin, the price of this kind of battery could drop? We've seen uh, domestic solar panels, for example, halve in the UK at least in in the last three to five years. Would, Would you expect a similar thing in battery development? I think we need to see that if this is going to take off. My own concern in this is that the technology level is quite high. Some of the materials that are being used are quite scarce materials. It's not obviously going to come down to very, very low prices, and we're still going to rely on two things. One is government intervention, taxation, taxation benefits. for And subsidies for the consumer. Subsidies for the consumer. Um, and, the, and the need to have some sort of carbon uh, price that means that carbon materials themselves are going up in price. So at the moment, it's great that this is being announced, but where the oil price is so low, it's tremendously courageous to do it. Do you expect that the household battery from Tesla will go the same way as electric car uh, systems invented by Tesla, that they have effectively made freeware for everybody to borrow. I think you would have that need to have it much more open so that people can become comfortable with the fact that it's in their home and they can, they can use it. You continue to move forward and by creating other suppliers, getting other comfort in the market, it's a model that works because people will see that there are options and so they'll move forward with it rather than just a single patented protected area that maybe people would be more uh, nervous to take up. That's Dr Colin Brown, who's uh, Director of Engineering at the Institution of Mechanical Engineers here in the UK. Right, uh, let's kind of go to... Uh, it's, a home, uh, it's a home game, I think, for Alison, first of all. Um, and before we get into batteries and so on, I, can you just describe what you know, the world of Tesla is like for those who've never been to Silicon Valley, let alone inside the, the company itself? Yes, Tesla is a pioneering electric vehicle company. They basically changed the image of an electric vehicle, like a golf cart, to something that's sexy and fast. They introduced the Roadster, which was a little two-seater, and most recently they've introduced the Model S, which is a four-door sedan and um, very fast acceleration. And uh, for the cool price of between seventy and a hundred thousand, you can you can be driving one and. It can be powered with your solar panels at home. Yes, lovely, but and, and right on, but pretty expensive for for the average income, even in the United States. 
Yes, indeed. It is an expensive car at the moment, but they are planning to introduce what they call a um, Model 3, which will be in the in the region of $30,000, much more affordable. OK, so, uh, well, OK, let's talk... I mentioned Elon Musk. Uh, many listeners will be familiar. Others may be scratching their heads and, and reaching for, for the web to look him up. You've met the man. How would you, how would you introduce him to a global audience? He is a genius inventor. I think um, some people describe him as the um, Edison of this day or um, incredible inventor, incredibly sharp-minded and uh, genius, uh, big old geek. But um, he's very personable and basically he has grand visions and uh, wants to take his vision and uh, make it happen. And he has the ability to paint a picture and motivate a team and build a team to basically, he's changed the world of electric vehicles and he's now planning to change the world of power, utilities and battery storage. Yeah, more on that in just a second. But before we leave the guy himself, I mean, he is clearly putting his money where his mouth is. I mentioned this um, almost, you know, making Tesla automotive technology uh, freeware for, for everybody to use who wants to learn from it. Um, that, I guess, is enabled by pretty bottomless uh, pockets in terms of personal wealth and company wealth, but it's also a, a pretty clear ideological statement. Absolutely, yes. He made his millions um, as a co-founder of PayPal several years ago. But he has, uh, as I say, built an incredible team of venture capitalists and physicists and experts who are able to, to make his visions a reality. OK. Now, I know you've been talking to uh, at least one board member uh, of Tesla. And uh, before you introduce him to us, uh, just tell us what they've been uh, letting out so far on the battery story because we are expecting this big announcement. Which seems a bit weird because it's quite late in the day, isn't it? What, 8pm it's due? Yes, indeed. Um, I understand that Elon Musk is meeting with the um, Japanese uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe at the moment in Silicon Valley and then I assume he flies down to um, to LA where he's going to be presenting this, what they're calling the missing piece. He's been teasing social media and all his followers for at least a month, talking about this missing piece of the puzzle, which basically is the troika of Solar City, Tesla and the Gigafactory, which is going to produce all these millions of batteries, which is going to allow these uh, battery storage, storage um, facilities to be placed in your home and for companies and utilities. Right, we'll hear more about the Gigafactory in just a second. Let's hear briefly then from Steve Jurvetson, who I think is a, a vice president at Tesla. There's um, a lot of inefficiency in the utilities where they'll build entire gas-fired power plants called peaking power plants that are just turned on for a few hours a year at most for those peak needs. And it's like all that infrastructure, just because you couldn't do needs sharing or have a capacitive buffer, if you will, like a big old battery sitting in there on the grid, you wouldn't need that. And so... Distributing that just makes it so much easier, putting it near the point of consumption and point of generation in a solar context. But, but what is the market for mm -hmm. these utility-scale batteries? Would it be companies like Apple that are going solar oh, in a big oh, way, or sorry. is it to sell to Good question. In general, there's a whole cascade of markets, everything from consumer for their home, businesses, 
and the utilities themselves. The utilities can go to all kinds of technologies. And so even, even telcos, like for a cell phone tower, you need storage there as well, especially in places like India and elsewhere. And so they have everything from, there's technologies like flow cell batteries. There are compressed air solutions being developed. There's a variety of different ways you can do approaches to this in general. Tesla's approach is just leveraging what they know best, which is the lithium-ion cell chemistries and batteries and putting them into and a, and a battery management system so that you can uh, potentially address a whole range of these. So it's the right. same batteries they use in their car? That, exactly. Right. Exactly. Got it. Yeah, Got just it. thousands of them. Yes, thousands of them. Hence, to the Gigafactory. We'll pick up on that with Alison. We'll be back with Revity as well. That's That was uh, Steve Jovitson, by the way, of Tesla. We'll just get a check on the world headlines. Uh, Julie Campbell's here in the studio. The United Nations Secretary-General has spoken of the increasingly desperate plight of civilians caught up in the fighting in Yemen. He said that more than 1,200 people have been killed and 300,000 have fled their homes in the past six weeks. More protests have been taking place on the streets of Baltimore and Philadelphia in the United States after a young black man died while in police custody. Colombia's Supreme Court has sentenced the former head of the country's secret police, Maria del Pilar Hurtado, to 14 years in prison for spying on opposition figures. And a volcano in southern Chile has erupted for a third time, just over a week after it roared into life following four decades of inactivity. In the markets, the Nikkei was down at 19,520 shortly after opening, while the yen rose slightly against the dollar to just under 119 and a half. Julie, thank you very much. Let's uh, pick up with Revity, listening uh, to what Alison was saying uh, from Bangalore. Revity, on the, on the big picture, first of all, electric cars and now. We heard a little bit of uh, technical inside scoop there from Steve Jervitson on, on where we're moving in a domestic uh, battery uh, to be made uh, at this huge plant they're, they're planning. Um, so, so first of all, your, your impression initially. I think it is fantastic because uh, in a country like India, it's not just topping up. Uh, For example, I have zero connectivity today. For the last 12 hours, it's been raining heavily and we've had no power at all. So all connectivity is lost. I'm even surprised that I'm able to, with one feeble little phone, I've been able to connect on. But uh, my storage batteries that I have are all out because I have three hours of backup, which is all gone. uh, And therefore, we wait for connectivity to be restored. And that, I guess, is an application that would apply in many, many countries beyond India. The idea that you could weather rolling blackouts, you could weather brownouts, you could weather, as we were hearing from Dr. Brown a, a few minutes back, the idea that, you know, the grid doesn't like the fact that everybody switches on the kettle when a particular TV program ends. And then, you know, consumption goes up and consumption goes down. But you're saying you can bank it, use it when you need it and not necessarily get hit by a little domestic crisis. Absolutely. Because uh, and this is this is pri- pretty common in India. It's pretty common for a normal household to have a, a one to three hour battery backup. So really, I, what I would be interested in knowing is uh, the pricing, uh, the per unit pricing of uh, electricity vis-a-vis the grid power. And if it is competitive, uh, maybe it can be made a little competitive initially via uh, government intervention. And if that is done, it really uh, helps bring the cost down. 
because that's what is happening even in solar panels in India. Uh, now, government with government intervention and the fact that the pricing is com coming down, um, people are ve feeling very highly encouraged to take uh, solar, make that initial investment on solar batteries, so they get uh, power uh, to take take uh, over when you have uh, blackouts and power outages of the kind that we have in India constantly. Alison, have we had any hints about pricing on this? Um, there has been some speculation um, that what they're actually going to do rather than sell the units, which could be a, a prohibitive upfront cost, they're actually going to offer a leasing program, which is what they do with their Model S, their cars as well. So that is something that we will probably hear at 8pm Pacific tonight. Um, however, as far as costs go... Um, they have predicted, Elon Musk has actually predicted, thanks to economies of scale, this gigafactory, this huge $5 billion factory they're building in Nevada to make batteries. Thanks to economies of scale, the battery cost will come down by 30% by 2017. So that's a huge reduction in, in cost for them, and presumably they will pass that along to the consumers. But the main idea, if people don't get it yet, the idea is that your house, if you've got solar panels on the roof or if you've got some wind power there, your house can become a power station with the addition of these batteries. In other words, you know, no matter what natural disaster, earthquake, etc., is happening, you will have a reliable source of power. You won't need the utility anymore. You can just disconnect from the grid, go off grid. So that's the huge potential and that's why people are really excited about tonight's announcement. I've just, we've now talked about the Gigafactory, we've hinted about it. It's, it's such an extraordinary concept and, and probable reality. I've, I've just got to get you to tell us more about it. I've got a picture of it here and I assume it's a, a kind of graphic mock-up from the, from the Tesla site and it talks about 50, we heard about megawatt hours and so on earlier, there's 50 gigawatt hours in annual battery production by 2020, enough for half a million Tesla cars uh, and, and I guess for people who, who are uh, turned on by this kind of thing, a net zero energy factory, I mean quite an extraordinary project. Yes, net zero basically means that it will it will be solar powered itself. So at the end of the day, it will produce as much power as it uses to to make these batteries. That's what a net zero building is. It's it definitely is quite uh, revolutionary, and that's uh, it has Elon Musk's uh, fingers all over it. Yeah, in, in this picture, just to try to describe it for listeners, it's it's like a, a an elongated playing card shape. Uh, and the entire roof is is vast solar panels, kind of like a, a solar farm just laid perfectly flat. And I guess Nevada is about the best possible place to be for that. Indeed, indeed. A lot. Several uh, states were actually fighting over it. California was hoping to get it too, but um, Nevada won out because they they gave some very juicy incentives, shall we say, <laughs> to to Tesla. <laughs> But uh, yes, Nevada, you, probably 360 days of sunshine, something like that. So yeah, yeah, they can really um, leverage from the, the solar power there. But uh, yeah, the battery, the factory um, will produce more batteries once it's fully operational in 2017 than the world supply was of batteries in 2013. That's what they're predicting. <laughs> it's just, it's a, it's a mind-blowing amount of batteries. <laughs> and uh, Steve Jervison, who's actually a board member, not a vice president at Tesla, he told me that they're actually planning, once this one is up and operational, 
channel to build more around the world. So look out on, on your doorstep. They're, they're also, as well as being uh, net zero, they're going to be um, creating a lot of employment. So there'll be a lot of uh, communities uh, wanting them yeah. in their backyard. No wonder too. they love it in Nevada. No wonder, yeah, they'll, they'll be lining up in different countries. Uh, Riveted, do we know about electric car take up in India? I mean, I, we, we talked on the program last time about, uh, you know, about pollution and so on. Uh, if there, there are many cities, I dare say, with, that, that would love them, but they are still very, very pricey. Yes, they are very, very pricey. But uh, Bangalore did produce its own uh, uh, electric car uh, company, uh, a car called Reva. It's a cute little two-seater uh, and it could do city driving. So, so give us the uh, name again. Reva, R E V A. Okay. Yeah. Two seater. And yeah, it is a two seater, and uh, but uh, pricey. So. Um, so how yeah. many of those do you see tooling around Bangalore? Um, we do see, um, you know, uh, a few thousands, but it it can be many many more. Uh, the price price has to be become more competitive, and uh, they've just got bought over by. A company called uh, a company Mahindra. Uh, they are pretty big in the auto sector, so I think they have deeper pockets to uh, sort of invest more. So uh, India is pretty used now to the concept of electric electric cars. Uh, if the pricing is right, the market will pick it up. Uh, but of course, we always have this. A problem of electricity itself being a problem. Yeah. So, yes. uh, you know, it's a chicken and egg. So uh, just, just one final thing. You, you talked about solar earlier and you talked about subsidies. Is there any prospect that uh, Mahindra could be helped out by the Indian government saying, you know, here, here are subsidies on, on, on battery-powered cars? Yeah, I think the government uh, needs to do a lot more and I think they are at this point engaged in public policy discussions around this because climate change is a big issue and uh, government is concerned, but they have to take a lot more positive steps than they have taken now. They have taken some baby steps on solar, but really not significantly on other things. So, yeah, they, there is a lot more work to be done. What about in the U.S. on that on that last point uh, on, on subsidies? I'm, I'm 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 about to buy a new car. Looking at green cars here in the U.K., and it's striking that there aren't that many incentives to go green beyond a, a pretty small amount of money on road tax that you get let off if it's a green car. Alison, what what about the U.S. Maybe especially California. Yeah, there are incentives. There are federal incentives and there are state incentives and each state decides uh, how much it's willing to, to put in. But of course, there are advantages because the uh, the roads are cleaner if there are more electric vehicles because they're not, um, you know, pushing out pollutants into the atmosphere. So the government is definitely plays a part and in fact on this battery storage issue it's happening here in California partly because of there's an energy storage mandate California leads the way in a lot of uh, environmental issues and they've actually the government here has required utilities to buy 1.3 gigawatts of energy storage capacity by 2020 and that's helping stimulate this market so it's forcing the utilities to to go green there's um, the renewable energy mandates 33% of renewables by 2020 
and to forcing them to have this energy storage because the government knows here that without energy storage, these renewable um, energy supplies are ephemeral. It needs to be able to be stored to be reliable. So that's a key thing. And in fact, one thing I didn't mention when I did talk with Elon Musk at length, he talked about how his, um, he's incentivized by uh, climate change. It's a huge issue for him. And in fact, he, he talks about how you know, carbon's being pumped into the atmosphere. We're playing Russian roulette with the atmosphere, he says. He says it's the world's dumbest experiment. So that's one of his motivations for pushing electric vehicles and pushing solar power. And as I say, I think this third part of the troika, this missing part, uh, today's announcement is really going to complete that circle and connect it all together. Fascinating discussion. It's been great having the both of you on the programme. We're just going to wind up the hour with uh, two or three intriguing headlines out of North Korea for you. And, and we're going to go to the BBC's Steve Evans. And, and Steve, thanks for your patience. You've been waiting for us there in Seoul uh, for a few minutes now. Uh, and it emerged on Thursday that uh, Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, will not be going to Moscow. Um, what do we know about the planned trip? And do we know why there's a, a bit of a U-turn on the trip? We know that there was a definite plan because the Kremlin told us it announced back in January that the North Korean leader would be at the celebrations to mark the end of the war in Europe, the Soviet end of the the Red Army's victory in May. Now, there was some dispute about whether technically that meant that somebody other than Kim Jong-un could go, the head of the assembly or something. But that was the widespread assumption that he was going to go. And this would be a big deal because it's the first time it would be it would have been the first time he'd left North Korea since he took power from his dad three years ago. And his father was not a good traveller either. He did go to Moscow, but he went by train. So there's a trip. Uh, and that led to surmising, does he go by tra- did he go by train because he liked the, the luxury of his own train, or did he go because he feared assassination if he flew? And, and you know, mm. we simply don't know the answer. Yeah. So we, knew, we know that he or somebody senior was going to go, and we now know through the Kremlin that that's not going to happen. So all kind of surmising about why, no, no reasons being given. You know, does it mean that he's fearful of leaving home because he doesn't trust the people around him or is it something much more innocent than that? Yeah, yeah. I was attempting to draw a connection between this and the next headline which is a a claim from the uh, spy agency in South Korea where you are that there have been a number of executions carried out in the north uh, over the last uh, couple of months. Is that a reach to suggest there might be a connection between between the two? Well, we don't. I mean, the truth is, we simply don't know. And you have you have to have a bucket of salt with all kinds of allegations coming out of North Korea, because some of them turn out to be completely false. But this came from a briefing by the South Korean intelligence agency to parliamentarians here, to lawmakers here. And South Korean intelligence is thought to have pretty good sources in North Korea. But having said that, I know for a fact that some of their methods are simply looking at pictures. Hmm. Who's not there anymore? That kind of thing. But if it's true, 15 executions, one of them for a minister in the forestry department who dissented on forestry, 15 executions is one a week. Now, that indicates, to me anyway, a pretty severe purge. What we don't know, nobody thinks that Kim Jong-un 
the regime is going to collapse anytime soon. There, there used to be what's called uh, in the trade a collapsist view, which was that the, that the regime would collapse because of dissent or a coup or whatever. Uh, authoritative outsiders don't think it's going to collapse anytime soon. But if you're a dictator, you must fear those around you. That's the nature of being a dictator. So whether he's fearful, paranoid, we simply don't know. Steve, thanks a lot. Steve Evans, as always, pleasure having you on the programme live from South Korea. And that does it for this edition. Thanks so much for being with us. Back same time tomorrow. All being well. News next on the BBC. There are dozens of different podcasts now available from the BBC, including news, documentaries, science, business, arts and sport. For details of them all, go to bbcworldservice.com slash podcasts.